cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Kingsley Kipuri. As usual, I will be your host for the next hour. I'm joined in studio by Daily Maverick expert reporter Greg Nicholson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Man, we've got quite a packed show lined up today. We'll be talking at things both at home and abroad. So issues like um, the Operation Viela Reclaim in Cape Town. We'll also be talking about the continuing drama around around Omar al-Bashir. And, and we'll also be, be, be talking about what is being described as as ethnic cleansing in the in the Dominican Republic. Um firstly I just want to go and, and, and talk about what's what's going on in Cape Town and we've got uh, reports of the army and, and 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 other sort of bodies um continuing this 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 operation Fiela reclaim. So I'd like to speak to uh Bernard from from ground up to to tell us a bit more about about what's going on. Bernard are you here with us? Yes, yes, I'm here, yes. Ah, fantastic. Now, Bernard, we've been hearing some disturbing reports coming out of Cape Town. Could you just please give us an idea of, of what actually happened yesterday? Uh, in fact, that was on Saturday. Um, as a reporter, I was just uh, handing out for news. So I went out uh, in Cape Town. I, I was using public transport and train. Mm. And when I got out of the train, I saw people queuing. And I wondered what was happening, but then I just noticed that there was there were soldiers. I think there were female soldiers fetching people. So unfortunately, I had, I hadn't kept with me my only uh, document, my only passport. So I decided I should I could leave and then go on for something else. Mm. But but then later on I had to come back. So on my way to the train station, my because I'm a freelance uh, reporter, so the editor called me and asked me if I could do this story. Then that's when I decided, okay, I shouldn't go into the station right now because I think I, I thought it was not actually secure for me to go there. The following day I had to go there then. Interesting. So so that, yeah, please, please tell us more. The following day, on, it was now on a Sunday, I had to visit uh, different uh, tolls and the, the people who... The, the barbers, but most of the people didn't want to speak to me. Those who wanted to speak to me, yes, they were also courageous to speak to me. Some of them were worried about the situation, about what took place before the on a Saturday. And uh, when I approached this woman who was uh, who who sell uh, mutton and papa and beef. She was actually telling me that oh, it was bad on a Saturday because her sales went down. She was not able to pay her workers the weekly wages because of what happened the previous day. So I asked her, what actually happened that day? She said, oh, we only saw that all in and out points were blocked, so we couldn't move. Nobody was allowed to move around. So, this, and I said, what was happening? They said, soldiers were looking for um, uh, counterfeit goods, uh, any other, uh, uh, the, the people who were not, uh, who did not have documents, and then most of them were arrested. So they're describing so, that the army came through and the army was looking through their goods, the army was looking through their documents. Uh, I, I actually don't know whether the army was, who was actually looking for the documents. Mm. 
but it was a combined operation by the army, the police, metro, rail, and immigration officers. So who actually did what? I am, I'm not actually aware of that. But I actually went into the top deck of the uh, captain train station mm-hmm. the following day. Okay, interesting. So, um, 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 were there any reports of anyone being injured or any intimidation or any goods being seized? Uh, according to what I could, I think there wasn't anybody injured because I asked the people, were there any people injured? But most of them were saying, no, these people uh, confiscated our our stuff, mm-hmm. but they did not give us any, uh, any receipts because most of them said they wanted to get back their items, but they didn't know how to get the items. Mm. Now, Bernard, you're speaking to Greg here. Um, one, there's been a bit of controversy over whether Operation Fiala Reclaim is, in fact, either a crime-fighting operation or it is targeting, targeting foreign nationals. After your experiences on the weekend, what's your views on, on, on that question? Um, uh, on, on, this, on the operation? Yes, yes, whether, whether you think it's um, particularly just fighting crime or they were particularly targeting foreign nationals on purpose. Mm, you see, we I think as I think we should approach this uh, this whole process, this operation on an open mind. Uh, looking at the government itself, I think it, it might would like to be to use this operation as a way of getting rid of um, criminal elements in the society. But at the same time, let's look at are they doing it in the uh, best way possible? Uh, maybe to leave other people so that they don't care people in, in the in the way in the manner they will be doing the the whole operation. But uh, you know, um, it's also difficult. I know it's also difficult to warn people that we are coming for to do this because you won't get anything. You won't yield the result. Okay, Bernard, thank, thank you so much for, for giving us a breakdown of what happened. We'll make sure to sort of come back to you uh, in the coming weeks as we continue to follow this story. Thank you so much. Pleasure, thank you. Okay, fantastic. Now, Greg, uh, Operation Viela Reclaim is something we've talked about in the past, where it sort of started in the, in the explanation given by the president to, 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 to basically be allowed use of the army uh, sort of on home soil was, was to stop the, the violence against foreign nationals. And time and time again, we seem to be hearing that it's being used for, for reasons that are not, not quite that. Well, actually, at the moment, yeah. the reasons aren't anything to do with that at all. Yeah. Um, the the stated reasons from from the government at the moment uh, for deploying the army alongside the police force in Operation Fiala Reclaim is that it's a crime combating operation aimed to to tackle the you know rather pervasive scourge of crime across South Africa, and and they're acting on tip offs um, to target criminals. Of course, when when the army were deployed with the police after the xenophobic attacks in particularly KZN and Gauteng, um, obviously everybody thought that it was it was to stop xenophobic attacks. Now that's completely shifted focus. I mean, it's I mean it's really worrying, and the reports coming out of Cape Town are, are sort of like now a. Sort of, I don't know what to call it, but this like super crime fighting force where you've got the army, the police, metro cops, immigration, and apparently they had brand specialists who, who know what, what kind of goods are, uh, are, are sort of fake or, or not fake. And they I had, was like, wondering that. A how, super force. Yeah. How, how, how do you go there and look at a pair of Gucci jeans? I guess if you see a pair of Gucci che- jeans at, you know, Cape Town train station, you're not going to think they're like authentic. But still, I was just wondering if, if it's just a metro cop, you know, trying them on and being, mm, these don't quite feel authentic. 
But yeah, so, so I think at the moment it's really being pushed across the country and targeting a whole lot of different people for different crimes. But in this instance, I think something like out of 84, 85 people arrested, yeah. 81 of them were foreigners. One person, I think there was a, um, an arrest warrant out for already. Okay. But, but so one person was, was arrested sort of for the right reason. And often those, those yeah. seem to be the figures that come back where a large amount of foreigners are arrested and the government is disputing that. Um, but there are a large amount of foreigners arrested, particularly for being undocumented. But then as, as soon that we're going to speak to lawyers for human rights, they will tell us what happens after the arrest is extremely worrying. I mean, we are trying to get a, a hold of lawyers for human rights right now. But I mean, before before we get to that, I think it's worrying just hearing about this 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 super crime fighting force. It just for me just indicates what the purpose is. If you want to in, the, in sort of arrest a group of people, no matter what, what do you do? You sort of put together the, every single person you could possibly need. To arrest someone for anything hmm. <laughs> You close down Cape Town Station Nobody can come in Nobody can come out And you look through Absolutely everything hmm. And that's what it sounded like So somebody's caught With like a little bag of weed Somebody's Gucci jeans Are not quite Gucci jeans Somebody doesn't have Their passport It's not I mean the law doesn't state You must have your passport All the time But you know hmm. you, you say he doesn't have one And you're arresting people Basically for For, for anything and everything hmm. To be honest It concerns me Particularly in the in the public's response where many people are saying, yeah, well, you must send in the army, you know, for, for more broader things and things mm, like that. But, mm. and I think it reflects, uh, this warped desire from, from society to have a heavy, heavy handed approach. Um, even if that heavy hand wipes away civil liberties. And absolutely. And that's really what we want to, want to get a, 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 a an idea of is, is where does the constitution, where do, where do the laws fall into the, some of the action we are, we are seeing? Now we'll be talking to Angela Mudukuti, the, the head of refugee and migrant rights at Lawyers for Human Rights. So Greg, um, back to this issue we're going, uh, about, about Operation Fiala Reclaim. It's, it's really, really worrying. So we're, we're sitting here, uh, what we first saw with the issues was with the, with the Zulu King and he, and he spoke out and really spoke out of turn about the foreign nationals and, and their role here and that we must sort of kick them out. And then what we saw was, Sort of everyday people in KwaZulu Natal, sort of going and, and kicking people out of the communities and, and burning shacks and, and it was quite terrible scenes. And what we're seeing is this is being, is this is becoming institutionalized. And now we have what is looking like the government using the army, using the SAPS, using the Metro Cops and using them to basically what is looking like getting foreign nationals out of South Africa almost at any cost. Anyway, it's, some, it's a story we'll continue following. Um, what we're going to now switch to is the issue of Omar al-Bashir that really dominated headlines um, all, of, all, all of last week. Um, he was in the country, has been charged at the ICC um, for crimes against humanity, and there was this issue of should he, be, should he, should he have been arrested um, here in South Africa um, and, and what really was the role of that. So we'll be talking to Angela Mudukuti now for, for real, <laughs> um, and she's from the South African Litigation Center, and we can get the breakdown on that. Now, Greg, this is something we talked about a bit with, 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 with Simon Allison as we just wait for, for Angela. Uh, we're now talking about the issue of Omar al-Bashir, uh, and we wanted to basically understand uh, who is the South African Litigation Center, what is your role in this? We, we saw you as being some of the first respondents to, to this issue and, and raising awareness and, and really making sure that we all knew what was going on and what South Africa's role was in that. So we'd really like just like a breakdown. Um, um, what, what is your role in this and, sort of, and, and what's going on? The Southern African Litigation Center is a human rights organization that focuses on strategic litigation on human rights issues. And under our International Criminal Justice Program, which is my responsibility, we work to ensure that states adhere to their international and domestic law obligations. Mm. So we have several other cases. For example, we have a case related to CRC matters. We have cases relating to corporate accountability, etc. 
So our job is to make sure that there's compliance with international law and domestic law. Now, Angela, did, when Omar al-Bashir was coming to the country and, and it was clear that he was actually going to be here, was this something you'd planned to go to court to, to see if these charges could be um, instated against him, or, or was this something you had to just jump to all of a sudden? Well, since South Africa agreed to host Afghan Union Summit in January of this year, we were aware that President Bashir could potentially come. And the same is true in 2009 when he was invited for President Jacob Zuma's inauguration. Mm. We were aware of the fact that he could come. But at that point, the state made it clear it was the DG of Durko who made it clear that should Bashir come, he would be arrested. And so mm. at that point, we need to have legal papers ready. So we were ready for that. And so this year, fast forward to 2015, we knew he might be coming, but we were not sure. And so in May of this year, we wrote an open letter to the relevant states, states uh, members of the state, indicating that we were anticipating Bashir's presence and reminding the South African government of its obligations in terms of the law. Um, and so by the time he arrived on Saturday, we mm. actually didn't have final confirmation that he was coming. And it was only at 10 p.m. on Saturday when we filed our urgent court application when we had confirmation that he had A, arrived, and B, had not been arrested. I mean, it's... I mean, it... I, there was a big sort of outrage and uh, sort of uproar last last week, uh, based on on w- w- what given South Africa's history, whether we should expect sort of a uh, a more a more serious response or, or perhaps a more a more aligned response be to, uh, from the executive on 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 what happened last week. What is what is sort of your reading of of the of of the role of the courts and the role of the executive and, and a potential misalignment about what what should have happened last week in regards to the to the Bashir situation. I think the glory of post-apartheid South Africa is that there is a separation of powers, the mm. executive, judiciary, and the legislature, and we saw that play out in the situation. Yeah. Our hope initially was that the government would you know adhere to its obligations and that there would be no need for legal action. And subsequent to us taking legal action, our hope was that the government would comply with that. And so I think it's um, I think we do have a bit of a rule of law issue. I mean, we have to wait for the state's affidavit explaining exactly what transpired, which we should get tomorrow, at which point we can make decisions going forward. But I think there, there are some serious issues here that the government seems to have disregarded a direct court order. Mm. Now, Angela, on this, on this issue, um, we've seen just recently um, ANC Secretary-General Gwede Mantashe say that if he was in government, he, he thinks we should pull out of the I, uh, ICC as quickly as possible. What are your thoughts on that matter? I think that would be a very, very tragic development because the ICC requires critical engagement and support not withdrawal. And I think South Africa has been leading as far as its commitment to mm. the ICC in domesticating their own statute that it would be a tragedy for this country and for international justice in Africa as a whole should a leading country like South Africa withdraw. And I, I also just don't think there is any purpose served by withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And and you must be constantly faced with this argument that uh, the ICC is um, anti-African, um, that that you know Blair and Bush and Netanyahu should be first arrested before before we touch an African sitting head of state. How do you respond to those to those claims that continually stand up in defence of um, the state letting Al Bashir um, leave South Africa? You're absolutely right, and it's the question I'm asked often, yeah. and the answer is very simple: uh, the ICC has jurisdictional limits. And so there is no jurisdiction for Tony Blair, and there's no jurisdiction for George Bush. I will, however, say that the ICC is investigating the situation in Iraq with, mm-hmm. with regard to the conduct of British troops. So who knows what will come out of that? So, but for example, with George Bush in the United States, the United States has not signed or ratified the Rome Statute, and so there is no jurisdiction. 
And also, I don't think it makes sense for us to say just because we can't go to certain people, we should ignore everybody else. Mm. I mean, there are victims here. That justice needs to be done. Crimes have been committed, particularly in the Darfur region. UN statistics are now at 300,000 people who have died in this conflict, and nothing has been done to address this. So I don't think this is a valid argument to say, oh, we should go for George Bush and Tony Blair first, and then African leaders. I think we need to, we need to address the situations we can address. And we also need to criticize the ICC for not expanding the geography of its docket. That is a valid criticism, mm. and that's an issue that people should perhaps focus on as well. Absolutely. And, and what about this idea that's also coming up a lot, that if there's a UN summit, or in this case, if the AU is having a meeting somewhere, that, that, that place that it is, is not, is no longer in court South Africa. It's now, it's sort of, sort of AU territory, and that we must guarantee sort of safe passage to anybody to that venue and out of the country. Is that something that legally, is that a sound sort of argument? I don't think it's a legally sound argument because of the commitment South Africa has made in terms of its domestic law and mm. its domestic law of the ICT. And that means that immunity in this case doesn't apply. And the state respondents in our proceedings said that because they promulgated it in the government gazette that it was law, but actually for something to become law in this country, it has to pass through both, pass through yeah. both houses of parliament. Yeah. And this so-called immunity agreement did not go through that process. So I don't think this is a legally sound argument to have. And Angela, given the response to this issue and, and many people standing out in defence of both Al-Bashir and the state letting him go, are you shocked at how how little airtime the victims um, of uh, Al-Bashir's alleged crimes have been, have, been getting, have been receiving? Absolutely. I think that's a voice that's missing from this entire discussion and debate is the voice of the victims because it is on their behalf that justice should be done and they're in fact the most important aspect of this entire issue. But unfortunately, politics and rhetoric have overshadowed the vital issue, which is that they are victims that need redress and justice. I mean, absolutely, and I think a big tragedy from last week is that the, the actual work that happened at the AU summit was really lost among, amongst sort of the, the, the drama of what was going on. Um, Angela, I mean, how do, we, how do we keep supporting the work you're doing at the, at the litigation centre, and, and, and what, do, what do we sort of concern citizens? What, what, what can we do to sort of help to make sure that, that something like this doesn't happen again? That's a great question. Um, I... I don't know. I think, I mean, we'd be happy if concerned citizens would continue to follow us um, mm. on Twitter and on our website and to support the cases and just to remain abreast of the issues and to have an informed perspective before we jump to conclusions. That would be my hope, that people would you know, take the time to educate themselves before they adopt a position that they don't fully understand. Absolutely. Angela, I think that's sound advice for all of us. Anyway, thank you so much for <laughs> making time. Thank you for having me. Perfect. Fantastic. I mean, Greg, this is something that Simon and I talked a bit about briefly, and it seems to be something that, that, that's coming up a lot. Just this, 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 what is, what is, seems to be heading, butting heads between the judiciary and the executive. And I heard Gwede Mantash in an interview yesterday, and he was, he was, he was quite passionate that, that, that the judiciary seem, is trying to create anarchy in some cases. And he's, and he, and he looked back to the, the, the time we had parliament, um, when we had the unarmed guards, not the, what do we call them? The, the sort of, the white, what do we call white, them? white t-shirt, not, or white, waiters, or whatever. <laughs> not yeah. white walkers, the sort of in courts waiters who came into parliament and sort of evicted members of the EFF. And, and, and that's something that the courts played a role in with, with, with Nkandla. We saw, we saw the, the role mm. of the prosecutor come up against the role of the police, come up against the role of the president. And, and hearing sort of the, the secretary general of the ANC sound like he was almost anti or frustrated or almost angry at the judiciary and saying, 
it almost feels like they're aggressors and they're against us. So it seems to be sort of what's coming to be a clash between the judiciary. I think, of course, he's angry at the judiciary, but for due reason. And he actually singled out two particular courts and benches, Mm. uh, the Western Cape High Court and the North Gauteng High Court. And that was been... He seems to suggest that those two courts in particular in South Africa are uh, overstepping their role and not respecting um, the separation of powers between executive um, parliament and excuse me and the Sorry. judiciary and but the reason that those two courts come in for more criticism than others is mm. because mm. government is based in Pretoria, where the North Gauteng Court is, and Parliament is based in Cape Town, um, where the Western. It's, it's a proximity. It's actually a proximity issue. This is this is sort of your your nearest recourse. That's right. Issue in those areas. That's right. And I think they they have certain because we've had also parliamentary leaders. I think mm. Tani Mordisa, the the um, chairperson of uh, NCOP. Um, also had similar statements like this recently about, about parliament, I mean, the courts intervening and telling them, you know, which rules they should respect and things like that. But, and I see their frustration a little bit in that way. And the courts, when these issues have gone to court mm. as to, you know, whether, whether perhaps there should be a no confidence motion, um, in the president, whether that should be allowed in, in parliament, which has been in court, often the judges are reluctant to step into these, to these parliamentary matters when we look at that. But they, they have to hear them, you know. They can't. They they come up to court and they need to hear them, and they yeah, you have to hear the whole thing before you can then decide is it, is it your place even to hear this. Mm, that's right, and 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 I think one of the key problems that um, Mantasha and others should acknowledge, but obviously they won't acknowledge publicly, mm. is the breakdown in trust in the National Assembly, where with ANC um, National Chairperson Baleka Mbete as as the Speaker of the House. There is a real breakdown in trust at the same, but between different parties at the same time when, when there's increased tension in parliament with the EFF's um, entrance and the D, and the DA also really stepping up to put pressure on President Zuma and the ANC. And so what we've seen is, um, is a lot of these issues, the opposition parties are using any avenues possible to try and, to try and hold the ANC and the president accountable. And so we end up with, with, Parliamentary procedures coming in front of courts because the parties don't trust that the ANC yeah. is using its majority legitimately, and that's and that's the thing that's coming up, and and and, and it's often used in the sentence where the quote unquote good people in the ANC, which is a bit dramatic, but I think what what that represents is is where's the diversity in voices. Whereas if, if everybody consistently votes the, the, the party line and, 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 is, and is sort of adamant that this is what we all think and this is how it is, yeah. then, the, the, then the idea of MPs representing their, their constituents and, and, and everyone else can be seen to fall away. And, and I can't blame the opposition parties for maybe thinking that the only recourse they have is, is the courts. Mm-hmm. I, don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a really big problem that, that the ANC votes as a block generally. Yeah. Sometimes it would be nice to see some more dissenters, you know, within yeah, the ANC. Absolutely. But and, and in the past you saw people like Ben Taruk um um n- not vote on certain issues. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's quite common for political parties to to vote as a block and for, for certain MPs in those political parties not to want to put their their, their you know their heads above the parapet yeah. um and go against the party line because, yeah. you know, that would that it'd be seen as, as you know, breaking the rules. Yeah. But I think I want to come back to another point why why the ANC Secretary General Gwena Mantasha might be upset with the courts and yeah. that's while while the parliamentary issue is you know a little bit tricky and and you know a bit of a problem, the other issue is where opposition parties and certain um 
excuse me, and certain uh, NGOs and whatnot take matters to court where they think the state has um, has broken the law essentially, yeah. Yeah. and they win. That's a big problem, I think, because there are quite a few matters where the ANC government and the state have just been violating the law that they're supposed to enforce. And then people go to court to, in, to enforce that, and they wouldn't have to if the, if the ANC government wasn't making so many mistakes that are actually often quite blatant. And then, and then they find, the opposition parties and NGOs find that their court, the court is the only recourse because despite an issue being very public and, and, and very well known that it, um, is, 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 is breaking the regulations and laws, they continue to, to push, um, and defend their previous actions. Absolutely. I know we were at the, 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 the gathering, uh, was it last week or the week before? And we saw the deputy minister for justice bring this point up where, um, he, he felt there was sort of a betrayal of sort of genuine cooperation between civil society and the government mm. and almost saying, why do you go to the courts? Why don't you just give us a call and we can work together to fix these issues? Yeah, which sounds fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> we can all just hold hands and, and fix ed- education issues, fix health issues, you know, solve crime problems. Of course, we had Section 27 Equal Education and so on saying, we've been emailing you, we've been calling you, we've well, been sending letters for years and you're not interested. That's why we have to go to the courts. We have no choice. Mm, as a response, I think I, I agree with Deputy Minister John Jeffries, yeah. you know, um, on on the issue that NGOs shouldn't just run to the courts straight away because, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It also takes a really long time and some, yeah, it's and some a, of those issues. It costs a lot of money, yeah. takes a long time yeah. and leads to a breakdown in trust um, relationships between the between the civil society and government mm. on fundamental issues to South Africa's development. Mm. But um, I think one of the challenges is, and uh, Section 27 Executive Director Mark Haywood used this example, the example of when Section 27 took the matter of the Limpopo textbooks to, to court, he said that, that um, and I did quite a bit of work on this and I've seen the different letters, he said that they'd um, written about 50 letters for the Department of Basic Education and they would not, and, and, and the, the provincial um, MEC for Education. And and the state just would not engage them. It, it, it would would make promises and wouldn't come to the meetings. It just would not respond. And so, civil society guys say that they want direct engagement from the state, and they try to. So that's where they go first because that's what what's going to happen. The problem is the state on certain issues ignores them. Absolutely, and it's something we'll continue to watch. And it's it's really really crucial for South Africa's democracy. We're going to go into a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Get a taste of the Republic of Extra Cold at the Embassy event on the 27th of June at Nasrick, Johannesburg. This epic event will raise the flag for extraordinary experiences with Boys and Bucks, Casper Nyoves, and many more. With only 4,000 tickets on offer, get yours now for only 200 rand at CompuTicket or visit castlelight.co.za for more information on the coolest event this winter. Unlock Extra Cold Refreshment. Enjoy responsibly. Not for sale to persons under the age of 18. If you're just tuning in, tuning in, you're listening to the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Uh, we've been largely talking about Operation Fiela Reclaim and also just the, what seems to be sort of a, a butting heads between the judiciary and the executive. Um, now, quickly, we're just going to go to some international matters about what, something that's going on in the Dominican Republic. Uh, this is a Caribbean nation, and, and there's some really worrying, worrying reports coming out of there. So we want to talk to uh, Dr. Pierre, uh, associate professor from UCLA, to get a, to get an idea of really what's happening there. Um, uh, Dr. Pierre, are you here with us? 
Yes, I am. Uh, fantastic. Uh, now, now, doctor, um, we over the past week, sort of, sort of, it's, it's fair to say, some sort of the international community was so distracted. Um, so here at home, we had issues of Omar al Bashir, the AU summit in America. There was a sort of racial saga about can someone be transracial and so on. And I think something that flew under the, ra- the radar was what's, what's happening in the Dominican Republic. So we really just want to spotlight what's going on there and, and hopefully some context on that. Um, so, Doctor, please, um, if you could just sort of run us through what, what, what's happening there right now. Well, there, 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 there are a couple of crises happening in the Dominican Republic right now. Um, I, I don't know if many, many people know this, but uh, there's a unique history. The Dominican Republic is mm. on an island that has two countries. And so one is Haiti and the other is the Dominican Republic. And so they share an island. And this dates back to European colonialism when the Spanish and the French took over the island mm. and, and broke it in two, but also brought in um, hundreds of thousands of Africans um, as enslaved um, people there. And so um, since the Spanish took over um, the, the island, with the elites, they have always tried to get rid of their, their blackness, so to speak, um, because the Dominican Republic is about 90% black, but no one would claim that. Um, and so that, so that's the brief historical context. But mm. what's happening now is, is, um, um, is, uh, the first, there are hundreds of thousands of Dominicans who have, who are of Haitian descent that have been stripped of their citizenship. Okay. Mind you, there are lots of Haitians, um, migrated to the Dominican Republic, um, from, from, late 1800s to work in sugarcane plantations. Um, and so what there was a law that was passed in September 2013 by the Dominican um, highest constitutional court that effectively stripped citizenship of all black people that have one, at least one Haitian parent dating back to 1929. So can you imagine this, that, so even if you were born in the Dominican Republic, your grandparents were born in the Dominican Republic, you can still be deported because you no longer have citizenship. You've been rendered stateless. And so that's the, that's the big key, um, legis- legislation that was passed. Mm. But then there's also, um, a group of uh, hundreds of thousands of migrants that have been working in the plantations forever, um, that are also being, you know, that, that, that don't have any papers and they're also being deported forcibly. So the government is basically bringing those two groups together, making it seem as if everyone's an illegal migrant. But the truth is they, they, they stripped 250,000 people of citizenship, right? And then they gave them till June 17th to regularize their status, which means that they had to go and find all kinds of paperwork, get all kinds of um, letters of recommendation from Dominicans and to prove that they're Dominicans, even though these people don't know anything else but the Dominican Republic. And so the, 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 what's happening now is that Ju- this June 17th deadline has passed mm. and, and a lot of people are just afraid. Um, there have been lynchings of Haitians. They're putting them in buses and, and, and throwing them across the border. And mind you, these are porous borders, right? Just if you think about any, any of the African countries on the continent where people just go across borders to, to market and do different things. Mm. And so this is what's happening right now. So they're just, there's this anti-blackness going on and they're just basically pushing people, people who have never been to Haiti, who don't know anything, who have no family there. They're just dumping them across the border and they're doing that brutally. And, 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 and basically what the government is saying is that they're trying to do a social cleansing, which is really a racial cleansing. And, and there's a long history to that. And, and what's worrying about this more is 
This really reminds us of the 1937 massacre of about 30 to 40,000 Haitians at the Dominican border um, by um, a, a, a dictator called Rafael Trujillo, who also had the same kind of anti-blackness sentiment. And basically, within four or five days, they killed these 30 to 40,000 Haitians with machetes um, trying to get rid of them. And, and the Dominican Republic is fascinating because it has this history of, of not wanting to to claim blackness, right? And so even though um, what's fascinating about that as well is that most of the people are so black that you can't tell who's Dominican and who isn't, right? And you, you don't, can't tell who's Haitian mm. and who's Dominican. Mm. So in 1937, when Trujillo, uh, who was a dictator, ordered this massacre, the only way that they could tell the difference was to ask, go around and find any dark-skinned person and ask them to say this one word, in Spanish, that Haitians, because of their um, Creole language, can't pronounce a particular R in in, um, in in the Spanish language, and so they had them say this word this word called perejil, which is called which is the word for parsley, and so they would go and and, and at, look at anyone and say say this word, anyone dark, and say this word. If they couldn't say it, they'd be like, well, then you're Haitian, and you know it would massacre them, and so that's what's you know so they're drumming up this hatred of of of, of black Dominicans really. Um, and so now, the, and so what's worrying is both you have the militaries going through villages and basically looking at anyone who's dark enough to be, you know, supposedly Haitian, and then, um, and then, and, and then, you know, taking them and, and, and busting them across or, you know, beating them. And so that's what you, you, you have. It's a, it's a major, it's a major, um, international crisis that people are not paying attention to partly because I think, you know, Haitians don't get that much attention, mm. but they're black, right? And, and this is racial, uh, a civil genocide, I think, where we, we want to call it, and so racial cleansing. Jeez, so we have hundreds of thousands of people now being rendered, rendered stateless. I'm just trying to think, is Haiti, is Haiti accepting these, these are sort of people who are now being described as Haitians? Is Haiti accepting them and willing to sort of accept them and give them status in Haiti? No, well, well, partly, and I think there's something, you know, so, and, and Haiti has all kinds of problems now, right, mm. in terms of, you know, since the earthquake, um, Haiti's been under military occupation for the past 11 years. That's the other thing people don't talk about, you know, it's been, you know, so there's a military occupation by the, the, the minister, which is the UN occupation group, mm. and the thousands, there's a, so, so, so on, a lot going on. The president that we have in Haiti was installed by the U.S. government, mm. right, so there, so, so there's that, and then he's also part of the elite. So the the, the elites in both countries are doing business each other with okay. each other. There's all kinds of like corruption going on there, right? In terms of the, the the top elite, and so the Dominican elite are using Haitians as the scapegoat to actually cover, you know, all the economic and political misery that's happening in the Dominican Republic mm -hmm. for all its peoples, mm -hmm. right? And so, but then the Haitian government doesn't have any power, any say, and so. You know, the, the, the president now, Michel Martelly, which was handpicked by the U.S., he says, well, we're not going to accept these people because they're not Haitian, which is true. They were not born in Haiti. And I think that's a principled action. But at the same time, when you have thousands of people being thrown across the border, you have to figure something out. And according to reports from the border, they haven't really they don't have the capacity, to be honest, to 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 do anything. And so they've been basically impotent just sitting around um, waiting to see what happens and so i think on some part they're just as um to blame for not really make taking a stand but mm. then at the same time they're not um they don't have the the the, the right power 
um, to, to even stand up to the Dominican Republic. And I must say that, you know, what's fascinating, what's also important to recognize is that the Dominican Republic gets most of its trade out of Haiti. So they make a lot of money and a lot of people get enriched from just selling stuff to Haiti. So mm. there's a trade imbalance where the Dominican Republic, 10 times of its trade, you know, compared to Haiti, right? Um, the, the, the business elite, the, the um, corp- Dominican corporations, um, building agencies, they all make all their money in Haiti. And so, and that's the other part that's not getting said. So they can hate black people all they want. <laughs> At the same time, they're making all the money off of these black people. Oh my, this is just, I'm just like, every, everything you say just seems to make the situation more bleak. Um, what, what do you think is the role of the, of the UN and the, and the United States, which you mentioned is, is, has a role in Haiti? What, what is the role of them in trying to, in trying to correct what sounds, what sounds completely illegal and, and, and it's, what, what it's, it's illegal and, yeah. and the Dominican Republic is getting away with it because nobody's saying anything. Mm. And, and, you know, they've been trying to get, with their black populations, which is almost impossible. I mean, using Haitians as scapegoats, yeah. they've been trying to do it for years, right? And 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 um, I have to tell you, though, you know, the U.S. occupied the entire island for a long time. And the U.S. has occupied just about every island in the Caribbean and Latin America okay. in the past hundred years. Mm. And so, the U.S. occupied Haiti for twenty for almost twenty years, from nineteen fifteen. Um, to 1934, and then occupied the, D- the Dominican Republic around the same time. And when they left, they put Trujillo, Trujillo okay. in power. Okay. That's the dictator that actually killed the 30 to 40,000 Haitians. Mm. So, so that's the U.S. And but they're also the it's the corporations that actually, you know, brought in all the Haitians to work on the sugar plantations in the Dominican Republic. And not only that, the U.S. government's military sends people to the borders to help. The Dominican blocked the border. So there's a militarized border on the Dominican side, you know, trained and, 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 and manned by U.S. military because that's part of the quote-unquote global war on terror, right? The war on drugs and the war on terror. So the U.S. is part of this problem. And so, of course, they're not going to call it out because it, it would call out their, own, their particular actions in, in making this racial crisis even more political and more, uh, more disturbing. So just to be clear, you're saying that the, the Dominican Republic border has U.S. troops that are guarding the border between the Dominican yes. Republic and Haiti. Exactly. Jeez. And U.S. troops training Dominican soldiers. And so there's a great article that came out in the Nation magazine. It's a U.S. Nation magazine, mm. and it says, why are U.S. Border Patrol agents in the Dominican Republic? And it really points, shows how, you know, um, part of this, the U.S., you know, importing, exporting its, you know, quote-unquote global war on terror and linking that to this war on drugs. And so supposedly they're there to prevent drugs from coming into the DR and to prevent people from going, but they're the ones providing the training to the, the, the DR border. And so, you know, these international communities are all implicated in this, right? And the UN, you know, I have to say, people don't even know this. UN, after the earthquake, its soldiers brought cholera to Haiti that had killed 9,000 people in the past three years. So let's remember that as well, right? And so, and then, you know, lately it's come out that the UN has been sexually exploiting women and children there and, 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 and really treating Haitians as if they're less than, than, than humans. And so what we need to do is just figure out, you know, I think black countries, the Caribbean uh, community has come out, the Caribbean um, governments have okay. come out against this, right? CARICOM, which is the Caribbean um, regional um, board, you know, saying this is outrageous. But they, too, are not as powerful, for example, as the U.S., right, to come in and say something. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah what you're saying, it sounds like unless we have the, uh, the, uh, America 
bought into finding a solution to what's going on on this island. It doesn't sound like there's in, like there's going to be in, enough power from from the Caribbean countries to to really make any lasting change. I agree, but I also think the other thing we need to do is to um, is to make this known, right? I feel like people don't even know this. People on the African continent doesn't know that, don't know this, right? That you know, there are all these black people because they're black are being denationalized and stripped of citizenship yeah, yeah. And, and 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 deported and killed and you know, and just because they're black, right? And so, so part of that is to to get the world to know that this is happening, right? I mean. This has been under the radar from the very beginning between all the craziness happening all over the world, yeah. um, you know, especially in the U.S. with the recent, you know, shooting uh, of, of the black parishioners Absolutely. in the church by yeah. this white supremacist. So th- this has been completely left out of the conversation. And so I think you're right. I think the U.S. needs to step up and own its responsibility in creating this craziness in the Dominican Republic. But people also need to be loud and clear and see that this Dominican, this, this Dominican government is really creating a genocide. And, and it's similar in, in proportion to what happened in 1937. Mm. And until we call them out and get the world to come together and say, this is not correct, it's not going to happen. And so the first thing I think which is important, which is why I'm so glad um, we're talking about this on yeah. your station, yeah. is that people need to know that it's happening. I mean, absolutely. I mean, when when I when I hear this and I and I saw you speak about this on an, on a different podcast online, is I couldn't help but but try and connect these things and feel like almost like the, the state of black people was in was was in jeopardy. And I know it's it sounds a bit dramatic, but I mean, you it's there in the states, dramatic. do you it's feel like the there's world. a connection when you see Charleston, when you see Dominican Republic? Do you do you almost feel like just black people as a whole around around the world? Do you feel like there's something going on? There? Yeah, I, I feel like you know you know I think. The world never really liked black people. Yeah. So, I mean, so that's that. But I just feel like there's something going on where it's just, it's been drummed up, right? From, from, you know, from the very beginning, there's always been this anti-blackness globally. And we know this, right? And that's the result of this long history of slavery and colonization. Yeah. But then to see it drum up these days, I mean, from Libya, right? The, with the killing of Omar Gaddafi and the killing of, of thousands of black Libyans, right? Mm-hmm. By the Arabs, right? In Libya to what's happening in Morocco to, 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 to Africans. You know, to, to not Africans, but, you know, because Morocco is in Africa and they, they don't want to claim this, but <laughs> to, to what's happening to dark skinned people all over, right? To Europe, right? To the way, you know, what's happening to the African immigrants in Paris, yeah. in Italy. Um, and, and then, you know, in the U.S. where black people are supposedly more free, but there's this epidemic of violence, both by police and the vigilantes. And so there's something going on in this world where... You know, it's just about skin color, where it's unbelievable that people can get away with all this stuff. And I feel like the Dominican Republic can get away with it because everybody else is doing it, you know. And this is anti-blackness is so mm. pervasive. And until we stand up, you know, as, as together, right, and this is, this is the time for pan-Africanism, right? We need to come together and figure and think about these things that more than just national national problems. And I, and I say this about what's happening in Charleston, North South Carolina, and the U.S., is that this is not, the anti-blackness is not just limited to the nation. It's not just the U.S., it's all over the world. And so you can't take it piecemeal and focus on very specific national crises when you yeah. see it happening globally. And, 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 and it's our task as, as people of conscience to actually attack this and link all these things together. Absolutely. I mean, there's really, honestly, Doctor, there's really nothing I can add. Um, what I will say is thank you so much for your great work on this and for speaking about it. And, and, and I'd really love to do sort of a sort of state of blackness around the world show in the future. And we'd, we'd love to have you on that. 
Oh, that'd be great. Well, thank you so much for having me. And okay. um, I wish you the, the, wish you all the best. Fantastic. I know the time difference is brutal, so we'll let you get some sleep. Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> okay, great. Fantastic. Right, thank you. I mean, as I said, there's really, there's really nothing to add on to that. I mean, even here back home, we, 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 we think back to Marikana, and it's almost been three years since, since the massacre happened. Um, we had the inquiry that sat for almost 300 days. We had the testimonies and the brutal, brutal testimonies from all the families who've lost their loved ones, lost their sons, lost their husbands. And, and we hoped there would be some sense of justice coming out of that. Um, the president has received the report and he's been holding that for about, about 83 days now. And we still haven't heard anything on this. And it's, and it's, and it's hard to feel like there's going to be any justice for the, for the, for the families and the loved ones of the slain mine workers. Um, so what we're going to do is going to keep highlighting sort of every week that we don't have a response on this report. And we really urge you all to, to make sure that we can give something, something, something back to the, to the, to the families and communities that, that, that feel like their people were sort of shot and killed in cold blood. If you're just tuning in, this is the Daily Maverick Show. Please download the podcast and, and, and subscribe. We'll see you next week. Cliffcentral.com.